This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is shoot sh- shoe show number 232 with Dr. Lisa Oates on the benefits of organic foods. I wanted to do this show because a lot of people are confused. Every now and then we see organic food disparaged in the media with a there's no point, save your money uh, message. Uh, But Lisa did her PhD on exactly why there are benefits. And I'm really looking forward to tucking into this topic today. Uh, So her doctoral research investigated the health and wellness impacts of organic diets. She is a highly experienced naturopath of over two decades experience in the field, Uh, a consultant, a mentor, and she has been involved in the clinical education of hundreds of national naturopaths. What is it with my tongue tie this morning? Nutritionists and medical students. She is an adjunct fellow in the NCNM and at SCU and will be teaching into the new postgrad programs in organic food and nutrition and naturopathic medicine, which is really exciting. So she's also a member of the Environment Subcommittee of the NHAA and a current board member of the JFNT, whose mission is to promote and develop a community of scholars, researchers and leaders in the Australian naturopathic profession. Uh, She's been on the project you might have seen on Insight and over 200 radio programs in the past few years. Uh, and is uh, just an incredibly incredibly well-researched practitioner uh, to speak on this topic. So I felt that she was going to be the perfect guest to speak to us about organic foods from the health professional perspective because we have obviously talked about it from the land and soil perspective many times. Um, now, something I wanted to mention was I received a uh, an email from a lovely farmer's a farmer's wife of a sixth generation farmer here in Australia, who just wanted to clarify the practice of using glyphosate as a desiccant on wheat crops is not something done in Australia. And I really appreciated her email because I have actually written to a number of. Um, agricultural associations in Australia over the years to try and find out whether we do this because it's well known that it's done in uh, the Northern Hemisphere in some places. Um, But uh, Claire took the time to actually explain the how and why of both of the different practice choices, Northern Hemisphere versus what we're doing down here in Australia. And I thought I would share an excerpt from her email just to... um, I guess, comfort maybe. Uh, Aussies who do eat wheat-based products and flowers, you guys know I'm gluten-free and have been for 17 years now. Um, So that's not me because of my own health reasons. But for those who do uh, and who are thinking, oh my gosh, I'm really scared of wheat because of this um, huge amount of glyphosate used just before harvest, it's actually not uh, from what Claire is saying. 
Um, And so what happens in the Northern Hemisphere, wheat is planted in the spring, grown over the summer, and glyphosate is routinely applied to desiccate the crop quickly before the season changes uh, and so that it can all be completed before the snow sets in. Uh, It is also well known, I will add, that it improves the ability to harvest. It makes it easier. Uh, So there's probably a cost uh, implication there based on the research that's been shared on that topic in America. Um, But in Australia, back to Claire's words, we plant in autumn, grow wheat as a winter crop and harvest it completed at the end of spring through the beginning of summer, depending on how far south your farm is. Crops are left to mature in the sun, harvested when the grain is mature and moisture levels have dropped to allow safe storage. Using glyphosate is, in her words, unnecessary, expensive and definitely not standard practice in Australia. Uh, She also went to share that you'd be quite amazed at the changes happening in the cropping industry to reduce the use of artificial inputs, both chemical and fertiliser, sharing uh, that, um, you know, many, many uh, farmers here are absolutely committed to ongoing sustainability of our businesses, of course, because, you know, you need to do things that keep your business going uh, and agriculture in Australia more broadly. Um, We're at the coalface of the impacts from highly variable and rapidly changing climate and are acutely aware of the changes facing us all. We then went on to have a really great email conversation uh, and I think it's just so important that we keep these conversations going and for me it just highlights the importance of knowing your farmer because I think a lot of people would buy, as we do, we often buy from a produce um, provador at, uh, who does quite a few of the markets over the weekends in Sydney who aren't organic certified, they're too small a business Um, but they don't use artificial inputs. Um, And I think you can only have those conversations to know that your your farmer is transitioning. They're using less and less. You know, we really need to keep having these conversations because it will help us all drive uh, the issue of uh, synthetic inputs and fertilisers forward. And what I love about keeping the conversation open is it allows a lot of farmers who are still using um, perhaps high levels of inputs because that's just the way it's always been done um, and uh, giving them the confidence to explore different options um, and reducing those inputs and working through different method and practice um, because we grow the market of consumers wanting less and less of these uh, pesticides and herbicides. So, Go team on all fronts. I think it's going to take everybody continuing to speak, continuing to discuss, debate, share what we know, share what's happening on the ground uh, to move this issue forward. So I'm very much introduced, uh, very much looking forward to uh, swinging into this week's show. But before I do, I just wanted to remind you of the couple of wonderful people we're promoting this month. Number one is the quarterly publication that is free from the MyGrid pod team led by Jarvis Smith. Now, we started our uh, People and Planet series about five weeks, four weeks ago on the show now. If you missed my conversation with Jarvis Smith, please do not miss it. It really is a conversation of hope, philosophy, uh, comfort, uh, and I, I highly recommend you take the time to jump in. 
and make that a part of a beautiful walk in nature with your headphones on. I found it um, really, really lovely chatting to Jarvis and the work that he's done in the past to push forward uh, the uh, accessibility of information in the green space, eco, low-tox, uh, sustainability, renewables, regeneration, by partnering with National Geographic more than a decade ago now with the first eco-focused publication. Uh, he now has an independent publication with his team and it's highly uh, high, high-quality stuff. So jump onto mygreenpod.com forward slash subscribe. The details are in the show notes as well and sign up. And if you're lucky enough to be a UK listener right now, My Green Pod is also an online e-tailer for all things low tox, uh, partnering with many, many of your favorite brands that you've probably heard me talk about on the show here, uh, available to you guys in the UK. So enjoy that, you lucky things. Luckily, we've got lots of fantastic Aussie e-tailers over here and in the States as well. Everyone's spoilt for choice these days compared to when I started this work 12 years ago. Uh, And the second wonderful business we are promoting this month is the wonderful Republica Organic, Uh, my favorite Aussie coffee brand, extremely no tox. One of their values is ethics with impact. So you can be ethical, but often if you're not working smart and hard in business, you don't make enough of an impact. And uh, Republica delivers in spades on impact. They have driven awareness of uh, unfair treatment of farm workers, unfair treatment of coffee sellers around in the global markets for nearly two decades now. We're really one of the first, if not the first actually, to my mind, to market with an organic Australian coffee brand. Uh, and it's a beautiful quality product. I've been asked a couple of times this month by mould-sensitive people whether uh, I react to this brand. I would not recommend it if I did, guys, <laughs> because I know how horrible it is to be having a coffee with a friend when you're out and then your heart starts going crazy and then you start peeing every five minutes for a couple of hours while your body's trying to get rid of the mycotoxins. No fun at all. I've never had a reaction with Republica Organic, not with their instant, not with their pods, not with the beans. I don't drink a huge amount of caffeine-based um, coffee myself, uh, but I know a lot of you guys do and I've loved seeing uh, some of the shares. Oh, thanks so much for recommending. I went and picked up my um, signature beans from Woolies or my pods from Coles. Uh, And this is great for regional uh, customers who like to try and minimise the amount of online orders and shipping that you have to do when you're in a regional area buying low-tox things because they are available in your major supermarkets and also at Costco, by the way, for people who shop there. Uh, And I'm a big fan of sending a little message to these big retailers when I buy like my four or five things that I get from a supermarket on a regular basis, sort of quarterly, I just do one big shop. Um, I think my shop sends a message because it's literally 100% organic stuff and um, and really good quality uh, Aussie brands. So um, as I said, it's mainly the signature beans and the delicious ground Timor roast, which you can pop straight into your French press or stovetop um, coffee or uh single group or double group, however you you roll at home. Uh, Those are available at Woolies. And then Coles has a wide range of the pods. 
I just picked up the new decaf pods. I grabbed a couple of packets because my mum and dad have a pod machine. Um, and the Republica pods are biodegradable roughly around the same time as it takes to degrade an orange peel. So very, very fast. Uh, and of course, organic, um, and so much better for people, much better for planet. Uh, there is a high, high amount of pesticide and herbicide used in, um, the coffee industry when it's not organic. Um, so that's something to think about. If you're thinking about making your next organic swap, I would very much recommend if you are a coffee drinker, that it be to Republic or organic and give it a go. Uh, this, um, what was the last thing I wanted to say? Yes, our American listeners can even grab Republica Organic on Amazon. So that's fantastic. You can try our beautiful Aussie brand as well. And uh, I was so excited to hear when it was going to be available in the States because sometimes I recommend things and our American listeners can't make the most of it. And there are lots of you. So go check it out. Um, really great value too. And, uh, my favorite thing that people get super surprised about is their, um, Swiss filter instant decaf is actually delicious. So if you're in a workplace where you really don't like the idea of, uh, an old and very rarely serviced coffee machine, um, pumping through the aluminium pods one after the other, um, and no, uh, and no real transparency on where the beans are made, whether the farmers are paid, uh, justly, etc. then you can have your little stash of, uh, Republica organic instance. They're really, really delicious. Um, I'm mainly a decaf drinker, so I can vouch for their decaf and people are shocked at how delicious it is. So that's my little wrap up of Republica Organic. Uh, if you wanted confidence in their quality, uh, they have won so many awards over the years. It's crazy. But the most recent awards um, were the three awards that they picked up in this year's Golden Bean or last year's in November, rather. They were picked up a silver and two bronzes. The silver was for their signature espresso um, and bronze was for their signature espresso in an alternative milk category. So if you're an oat milk or an almond milk drinker, the coffee really still shines through. And um, bronze was also given to the Melbourne Laneway espresso um, in a pour over filter context. So the Golden Bean uh, Awards are highly coveted in the coffee industry. And it's been running for 16 years in Australia and in its sixth year in Northern America. So that is all I have to say this morning, folks, for your intro. I hope you enjoy the show and I can't wait to hear what your main takeaways were. Actually, one of the things I really loved that I was able to ask Lisa about was how to do good research because a lot of people get confused about this as well. So when we see a newspaper article and we see a claim made and we see a couple of sources, how can we then go and investigate those sources and ensure that the information is of a very high standard. Uh, so I really loved being able to pick Lisa's brains as uh, a PhD author um, published uh, in that space as well. So for people who feel really confused about research and how to do it, we also speak to that today. So enjoy today's show. Hello, Lisa. How are you? I'm really well. How are you, Alex? I am very well. I am very excited about this conversation, especially having just sent my second book off to the printers this week Ooh. on the subject of 
food and regenerative agriculture. So it's just like, yes, and now we're going to have this excellent confirmation that we're all on the right path. So wonderful. Very excited. Now, um, the first question I have for you today is there are so many things you could do a PhD on, uh, you know, and I'm very keen to hear both as probably a practitioner and as a human being how you arrived where you did and what your final PhD topic was. Sure. And, and actually, actually, that's a really good question. What was my final PhD topic? Because mm. most people I started with something slightly different. Uh-huh. Yeah. It switched uh, midstream. So um, I guess, you know, I, I'm a, a, a naturopath by trade and I've always specialised in the use of food as medicine. So when I'm looking at, at prescribing food for its therapeutic benefits, obviously I'm wanting to maximise what I think is good about food. Same time, I'm aware that food might also inadvertently have some substances that could be potentially harmful. So as a practitioner and, and as a person, I've always applied the precautionary principle of, you know, better safe than sorry, as my mum would say, um, sort of gone for organic food. But when I started my PhD, I actually started doing detoxification. And I actually realised certainly at that time, there wasn't a lot of literature to support it. And when I looked at the topic more deeply, I kind of thought, well, when I do a detoxification program with a patient, what am I really doing? And what I'm really doing is I'm removing those substances that I don't want them to have um, and I, the, the cornerstone of, of the detoxification programs I used to do was always around an organic diet. So it sort of just kind of shifted. Mm. <laughs> and I ended up focusing in more on that aspect. Yeah. And so obviously you were treating people for uh, a number of years uh, and, and arriving at the conclusion that an organic diet was better for your patients from a practitioner perspective what were you noticing? Like what kind of differences were you seeing? Look, I, I guess uh, what we're looking at doing from a holistic point of view is enhancing the body's natural healing capacity. So I guess what you notice when people are eating a more organic diet is that their bodies actually just have a better capacity to, to heal themselves. Um, but it's just creating better circumstances for the body to actually be able to focus on what it needs to do rather than focusing on trying to get rid of stuff it doesn't really need. Mm. And I'd imagine that trans that uh, uh, transition would include a more produce-focused diet. Yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, focusing on a, a, a largely plant-based diet. In the early days of my practice, I was, I was a, a vegetarian, um, so... I, I didn't exclusively ask people to eat a plant-based diet just because I was a vegetarian at the time. But even now that I've reintroduced some animal products, I still think that that's the basis of a healthy diet. Mm, yeah, it's about getting that huge variety of plant foods. And if you eat the animal foods as well, which some people feel great doing, some people not so great, and that's fine. Um, yeah, variety is literally the spice of life. I, I think it's just the easiest framework from which we can all focus on. It's like, do I have to buy that same vegetable every time? No, let's move through them all. Yeah, absolutely. We get into ruts with things. I, I tend to sort of like that, you know, we talk about the rainbow effect, look at different coloured fruits and vegetables and things to make sure we're getting a variety of the, the phytonutrients that, that plants contain, which have a lot of those healthful benefits. 
And I also, for myself, I work on that. I want to have 15 different foods every day and at least 30 different foods during the week. So I can't 15 foods every single day. I've got to vary them around a little bit. Uh, but that sort of keeps me on track to make sure I'm sort of getting a bit of variety and I'm not getting in a bit of a rut. Mm. And do you include herbs and spices in that 15 different foods? I do. Uh, if it's, Certainly if they're in, in significant amounts or substantial. Okay. You know, I, I put herbs and spices in everything. So yeah, same. If I had all of them, then I would probably far exceed the 15. Mm-hmm. I, I would say it's sort of focusing on, you know, 15 main foods and then probably some herbs and spices as well. Mm. And one more personal question. Can I ask why you started to reintroduce some animal products into your diet as a practitioner and sure. as a human? As a, It was more as a human. Um, okay, so... I was hiking in high altitude in the Andes with my sister. and As I've, one does. As one does. <laughs> and I've been a vegetarian for a number of years. And I, I must say I sort of, I did notice that my, my body was probably a little bit low in iron at the time. And we came across somebody selling llama kebabs. And mm-hmm. I practically wrestled this guy to the ground for a llama kebab. <laughs> I was like, I might need meat. It's so interesting you say that, Lisa, because I literally had Tammy Jonas, who's doing her PhD on uh, biodiversity and food sovereignty at the moment, and um, she's the president of the Australian um, Food Sovereignty Association. You would probably know her. Um, I'm aware of her, yeah. And she literally told an almost identical story a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I think I, I think our bodies tell us what we what we need, uh, and I think it, it's important that we listen to them when mm. they they speak up. Mm, interesting. Um, okay, so the organic diet became the PhD focus. Did you start to notice in the research that there were some very clear reasons why this might be preferable from a scientific perspective? I guess from a scientific perspective, it, it's a lot about what you're excluding when you have an organic diet. It's the thing you're, you're not being exposed to. So my research focused specifically on pesticide residues as something that we were trying to avoid. But I also did some quite large consumer surveys and things. Uh, I was interested in why people consumed organic diets and what they thought the health benefits were. And there was some really interesting stuff that came out of some of those surveys in terms of the benefits, the personal benefits that people notice when they move to an organic diet. Mm. Stuff that you would expect around, uh, I guess, around energy, around sleep, around immunity, those sorts of things. Uh, so that that what none of that stuff was particularly surprising. Um, when you actually look at, at some of the big review studies, and, and I think one of the things that's really important to recognise in this area is it's actually really difficult to study. So the fact that there's not a lot of research out there is because there are in designing studies that can measure these things. We don't have a lot of naturally occurring organic consumer populations that don't have other things going on that might have the results. So Yeah, because you could be eating organic, but you could be living in a water-damaged home or you could be eating organic but, uh, like, driving a big gas-guzzling diesel car or, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Or the opposite is also true. Yes, of course. Who consume organic foods are probably also more likely to exercise more regularly and, and take 
pay more attention to spending time in nature or other things mm. to promote health and you go well how much of it is the organic diet and how much of it is the other factors so it's actually very difficult to to study in the first place so there's a few sort of key things that come out of the literature reduced risk of things like metabolic syndrome, uh, lower BMI, and that was something I found in surveys as well. And then there are things like lower incidence of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, um, less problems with infertility and birth defects, uh, some, some research around allergies and things like that and ear infections. Um, but I guess one of the big things that, that we see too is there's certainly no evidence of harm. Mm, there it if is. You wanna, if you want to take the precaution principle you go we do know that things like pesticides have some detrimental effects it can be difficult to isolate populations into people who are exposed through the diet and people who are not exposed through the diet to actually see a clear picture there uh, but there's certainly no evidence that an organic diet uh, confers any harm and the, the one okay the one that comes up all the time is that the potential for harm is uh, because organic foods are more expensive and that is, and, and I think that that's a realistic concern, but the assumption is always that for some reason when people move to an organic diet, because organic foods are more expensive, they're somehow going to eat less fruits and vegetables and healthy foods because they're more expensive. But the reality is actually the opposite. When people eat an organic diet, they eat more plant foods. Uh, it's the animal foods that are more expensive that they tend to sort of uh, back off on and mm -hmm. they actually eat more whole foods um, and, and, of course, ditching the snacks and reinvesting that money into proper meals. Yeah. And, then, look, there are other things that we spend our money on as well. I, I don't really go with the argument that, um, that you don't eat organic food because of the, the cost. Mm. It's about priorities. And most of the research shows that income is not a predictor of organic consumption. People wow. yeah. at the lower end of the income scale are just as likely as the people at the high end of the income scale to purchase organic food. It's about where they prioritise their spending. A hundred percent. And I can say from my own personal experience, when we went gluten, uh, not gluten-free, that was much earlier for me, I had to, um, but when we made the decision to go organic, our son was a baby. He'd just started solids and we were, I had done a ton of research around the food system by that, at that stage from having to go gluten-free and finding out about all these weird additives and having to navigate ingredient lists. Um, and when we went organic, it was at our absolute lowest all time as a couple uh, income wise. I was exactly the same. I, I went organic as a student. Mm, yeah, I and I ditched the mani-pedis. I ditched, you know, there were a few things that I was doing just to treat myself once or twice a month. And I realised actually I would have the same feeling of being treated minus all of the uh, endocrine disruptors, mind you, uh, in one of those horrific salons um, and just put on a great movie or a show that I loved and set myself up and do that for myself at home, save the 90 bucks, invest it into the groceries. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think you also become cleverer. Mm, yeah, we did. <laughs> absolutely. Much and more get, savvy. You actually get closer to the source of food, which is actually better. So mm find to go to farmers markets and things where you can buy stuff that's in season mm. you know relatively cheaply uh and so I, I think that in itself is good because you're eating food that's more likely to be locally grown it's more likely to be seasonal it's probably been harvested quite recently 
all of these things are going to confer additional health benefits as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's a bit of a win-win situation there. Yeah, and can we just uh, dig into that a little bit more? Because I think a lot of people still don't realise that the length of time from which something was originally picked impacts the final point of eating uh, nutrient um, variety. And this is really interesting when they compare organic and conventional produce uh, often compared when they're first harvested. But we know in that journey from paddock to plate to person, a lot of things happen to the nutrients, uh, either because of things that they're exposed to, but mostly because of time and heat and all of those sorts of things. So as soon as you pick, say, an orange off a tree, the nutrients in it start degrading. And nutrients are more susceptible and more fragile than others. Uh, but the longer something's been in storage, the, the more those nutrients have potentially been come depleted. So if you're consuming something, and you know this if you've ever grown anything yourself, you go out to your garden, and I've just got a little balcony garden, but you know, I grow some lettuce out there and I go out and I pick that lettuce fresh and I eat it and it's so much more satisfying. Yep. It, it just, you know, it, it actually just feels in all ways more satisfying uh, because it's, it's still kind of energetically there as a, a lettuce as well, but the nutrients are at their height. And mm. things, when they're, you know, when they're ripe rather than picking them unripe and then artificially ripening them and things like that as well. But, you know, there's a lot of things that, that happen to our food for convenience so that we can consume things, you know. Around the clock, 24-7, yeah, all year round. Yeah, Exactly, you know, 52 weeks a year and all of those sorts of things. Um, to make sure that those foods are, are available to us. Mm. But, you know, if we can eat things closer to harvest time, they're, they're definitely, you know, mu much better for us. They're much um, more heightened in their nutrient value. Mm. I was so shocked to read about the change in uh, asparagus, for example, in folate levels. I thought that was just incredible. And then, you know, asparagus is one of these things that's so trendy now. Everyone likes to have it with their eggs. And then so therefore, of course, we need to have asparagus 365 days a year. So let's find some in Mexico. So let's chop down some of their forests, grow some more asparagus, and then air freight it over to us by which time it's barely got any good things left in it other than like, you know, yay, I'm eating asparagus, which it's one of my favourite vegetables. So, of course, that is a plus. But, I love asparagus. But, but it's also, just never, it's never the same if you don't buy it in that beautiful spring season. Exactly. Uh, you know, I think asparagus has like a six-week season or something like that. And I, I love the fact that asparagus is not available to me all year round. Me too. I, yeah. I, I, I Asparagus season is coming. Asparagus season is coming on and it's okay. And, you know, I, I, I think we, we are so used to having everything available all the time that we lose an appreciation for it. You remember the great banana crisis? Mm -hmm. You know, where everybody went nuts because, you know, the cyclones came through and bananas yeah. expensive. I was like, I think this is good for us to actually recognise the fragility in our food systems mm. um, and actually maybe remind us to pay a bit more attention and respect to the people that put, that, that produce our food. Oh, um, yes. And what they're actually going through and, and yeah. So I, I actually think not being able to access things from time to time is, is actually a good thing. 
Absolutely. And that's what keeps that plant variety piece in play because you actually are moving through all the different foods because you're moving through all the seasons. And nature gives you what you need in that season. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, gosh. I remember going to a lecture once uh, with a wonderful, he's actually a... Um, a knee and ankle guy, but he was very interested in diet because he was noticing the way that he could impact his patients for their long-term health in their joints could actually um, be bolstered by what foods he recommended. And he talked about how in the summertime, the vitamin D actually helps us process fructose better. And so that's, you know, you think about summer, the tropics, those really sweet fruits like bananas, mangoes, lychees, um, and if you're out in the sunshine all the time, you're actually getting tons of vitamin D and then you're actually, you know, your insulin works better at high vitamin D points. And so that for me was just like, oh my goodness, you know, those amazing revelations that help you really tune into the importance of seasonal eating and geographic seasonal mm. eating. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Mm. So uh, you talk about four very, you know, you, you put it into four really fantastic fourfold benefits, if you like, on organic eating. And it just helps people go, ah, I'm not just doing this for my personal health, but here are all the reasons that it makes a big difference. Can you talk me through those? Because then I want to talk about one of them in particular. Yeah. Sure. So uh, I guess the, the, the fourfold benefits you're referring to are, are actually the principles of the International Federation of Organic Agricultural Movements. And they're the principles of health, ecology, fairness, and care. And something that I think is really important to remember, when people hear organic food, often they're just thinking, oh, it's, it's food that's grown without the chemicals. But actually organic farming is much, much, much bigger than that. One of the reasons I think I first became interested in organic food was partly for the health benefits, but also um, my patients' values. So we're interested in sustainability and the environment. And so I wanted to recommend things that were going to be in line with those values as well. The principle of health is around the fact that organic agriculture should sustain and enhance health of the soil, the plant, the animal, the human, and the planet. So it's not just about human health, got to start with the soil and if you talk to an organic farmer they can bang on for hours about dirt oh yeah they're soil farmers <laughs> above yeah, everything absolutely. yeah you know, if, the, if the soil is healthy what grows in the soil will be healthy what eats the things that grows in the soil will be healthy um so yeah i think that that's one of the fundamental things then there's the principle of ecology which is based on living ecological systems and cycles and making sure you're working with them and emulating them and sustaining them the principle of fairness is around relationships that ensure that there's fairness throughout the chain um, for the environment and also for the life of, of opportunities of everyone who's involved in that food chain. Finally, the principle of care is that organic agriculture should be managed in a precautionary way and a responsible manner to make sure that it's protecting the health and well-being, not just of current generations, but of future generations and the environment as a whole. Mm, how good is that? It just makes so much sense. It it's does. crazy that we would think to do anything other than those four things. A little bit. Mm. And so uh, let's talk about pesticide residues then because 
Um, you, you mentioned it earlier and um, how that was one of the primary drivers for you putting patients onto organic diets. What are we talking about when we talk about pesticide residues uh, in terms of what's left over? It, does it, um, how greatly does it impact us? Can we measure it even? It's, it's pretty difficult to measure, actually. I mean, we can measure individual foods and mm-hmm what pesticide residues uh, might be on those foods. And I I know a lot of people think um, that they can scrub off the pesticides, but they will tend to be absorbed into the food. So it's not quite that easy. Um, So, yeah, look, I I guess there's a a, a lot of issues. We're we're talking about uh, chemicals in a a way as if they're individual items. But the, the reality is we don't we don't have exposure to individual chemicals, but that is the way that they're tested. Mm. Tested pesticide, even most of the, the pesticides you might be familiar with, they're usually not one chemical. Often it's a combination of chemicals, but chemicals are, are, are tested individually. And so it can be very difficult to pr- predict the responses to these cocktails of chemicals that we're exposed to. And that, not to mention the herbicides that are added yeah. to the cocktails. Absolutely. So, you know, that that food doesn't just have one pesticide on it and that pesticide doesn't necessarily just have one chemical in it. Mm. And then you're not just eating that food, you're also using a cosmetic product and you're doing other things. So we're we're constantly exposed to these cocktails of chemicals. And I I think the, the, um, the regulatory bodies do their best with the information that they have and they try to build in safety factors. But my feeling is it's actually almost impossible to to really do that so I just tend to to go back to the precautionary approach and avoiding what I can but not driving myself crazy trying to do it oh that's I'm so glad you said that because I've seen a lot of people drive themselves crazy trying to be completely pesticide free in every single aspect of their life and there's just there's a social element that you just need to be able to go with the flow and relax sometimes when you're not in control and you can't be in control because the stress will do you even more damage right totally absolutely absolutely yeah and I think um, in terms of pesticides, and you mentioned cosmetics, a lot of people don't realise that some of the uh, chemical components of pesticides are actually, similarly to cosmetics, endocrine disruptive um, and contain things like phthalates that we equate more to my perfumes got it, but my peach, I don't think so, but actually it can. Yeah. There, look, there are endocrine disruptors the whole way through the cycle, really. Uh, and, and it is a, a big concern and, and something that has been looked into. There's been some sort of big studies and things, but it, it's there's so many chemicals, it's just hard to know where to begin sometimes. Mm. And a lot of people go by the Dirty Dozen Clean 15, um, and that comes out every year. Uh, I haven't been able to find a huge amount of geographical relevance to Australia Um can you speak to that topic and, and guide us? It sounds like it's actually quite useful for US and Canadian audiences, but yeah. how useful is it to us here uh, in not Australia? Very. Okay, thanks. <laughs> not very at all. No, it's uh, important and, to know. And, and for the reasons you just um, suggested, that there are, are regional differences. So the mm. regions and patterns of use between different uh, regions and also the pests in different regions are different what's required. Uh, so, yeah, I, look, I've had a look at, at those lists pretty much every year um, for the last 10 or so years. And I generally find they don't match up particularly well with with what we see in the data in Australia. 
and, and to be fair, the data in Australia is quite limited. We don't do the same amount of testing that they do. So uh, I've been asked before to put together an Australian list and I just, I can't. There's just not information to be able to do that. But I guess what I would say is there are a few things that I would be particularly cautious about in terms of the things that, you know, people often say if I, if I have to focus on a few things organic or start off with a few things, what are the most important ones? And I would tend to focus on things like the palm fruit, the apples and pears and things like that, uh, berries as well, and anything with a, um, a large surface area. So green leafy vegetables and herbs and broccoli and things with lots of little nooks and crannies and things, uh, because then there's an increased likelihood that those pesticides will not be washed away and will be potentially will potentially have been uh, absorbed into the food. Mm. And so if we're eating conventional produce, how relevant is a fruit and veggie wash at home when we get the basket of goodies in? Uh, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I, I tend to like everything I bring into my home is uh, organic in terms of fruit and vegetables and things like that anyway. Uh, but if I was purchasing conventional food, I wouldn't rely on washing um, or any of the, the washers or anything like that to remove those residues because they do, but the term is translocate. They mm -hmm. do translocate into the food or they certainly can. Um, and the other option is to peel it, but then you're losing out all the fabulous nutritional value in the peel. So, mm. you know. Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, and so... So for the people who right now really do feel like they have a budgetary constraint around organics, what do we help them move forward with? I, I always say well, produce is still definitely way more important than processed packet foods. Like if, you, if that's where you can go right now, then do that. Um, what would the next step be? How do you help people navigate that who really do feel a big block um, financially? Maybe it's because they're regional and they can only get to a Woolies uh, supermarket and that organic section is definitely twice the price. Yes. Uh, so, look, actually, a lot of regional areas do have some good farmers markets. I know, and more and more, uh, I have to say. Farm gate stuff and things mm. like that. So, you know, often there are things that can be, sometimes it's easier in, in some regional areas than it is here. But uh, beyond that, I would also suggest growing a few things yourself. There are some, mm. even if you live in an apartment, you can grow on a windowsill, even if it's just, you know, some herbs to, to add to your salads or some lettuce or something like that. Connecting with in that way, I think, is also really important. So growing things, just being careful about the soil you grow things in. So if you're living in a suburban block, I wouldn't go and plant things in my back garden without having the soil tested. Mm -hmm. You don't know what, what might be in that soil. So the soil is important, but even if you can just make a small contribution by growing a few things and also... Uh, there are schemes nowadays as well, and there are box schemes and things like that that you can have things delivered. So it, but even in regional areas, there's some, some good options there. Yeah, and for uh, regional people, sometimes if you know you've got a few mates who are on the same wavelength and really want more options, I've helped, uh, you know, when I've done book tours and things, people sort of develop relationships with the butcher to say, look, we would buy four organic chooks a quarter each from you. So that would make 20. Would that be worth your while to get them in for us? And then we'll come pick them up frozen. You don't even need to worry about keeping them fresh. Um, and so they do things like that. They do the same thing with a farmer who's three hours away. That's worth their while if they come in for 10 boxes a week 
to do that drive um, if yeah. that can be organised. So never feel like you can't at least make a start and start investigating. I think there's always a way if you really want it badly enough. Yeah, I, I, and it can be very, very difficult in some particularly remote areas mm. where I, I think you're quite limited in your options. And it is, it's a privilege to have the choices that we have. It is. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I think it's important that we recognise that and make use of it where, where we do have that privilege. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, something that is... Um, really grates on me is that often we see, it sort of seems like every few years, uh, organics is seen as controversial in the media and like a study will come out saying it's no better than conventional, don't waste your money. Um, but really it sounds to me what you're saying over and over again here is it's what's not in it that's one of the biggest factors in why you would choose organic. Yeah, I, I'm never quite sure why it's controversial. I know. <laughs> it, it does surprise me. But, look, I, I think there's something about human nature. Uh-huh. And, you know, we're all susceptible to this in, in some ways. I mean, you know, is there such a thing as big agricultural lobbyists? Yes, of course, there, there is and they're loud and they've got lots of money. But um, sometimes our voices are maybe not as, as strong as they could be as well. Uh, and I'm not saying, you know, take to the streets and demand organic food and, and things like that, but I'm a big fan of Michael Pollan who says vote with your fork. Put your money where your mouth is. But the problem is we tend to sort of buy into these controversies because they feed into um, some of the conflicts that we experience as human beings. There's this natural conflict between our values and our wallets. And, you know, like... If, if I buy a cheap item of clothing, am I really thinking that everyone and everything in that the chain that bought that item to me was treated fairly? I'm probably not, but I'm, I'm, as I'm buying it, I'm probably trying not to think about that um, because I prefer, um, if, if I don't think about it, I don't have to sort of make that decision between my, my values and my wallet. And I'm looking at it, I'm going, well, it's pretty and I've got that party on the weekend and it's what I think I can afford. And so there is a conflict that comes up and that's uncomfortable for people when, when we're making decisions. We know that, um, that there are psychological benefits for people when they, they make purchasing decisions that are in line with their values. And, you know, when I buy organic food and I feel that in, in purchasing that organic food, I'm not just feeding myself, I'm also contributing to a world that I want to live in. Mm. And it's so important to tap into that bigger picture, isn't it? Because otherwise you get stuck in the place where you say, where you're eternally feeling ripped off by $6 a kilo carrots because for your whole life you've known carrots to be $2 a kilo. But, um, But once your values work has been done and you've shifted, then the $2 carrots go against your values um, because, you know, yeah. Yeah, sometimes people don't want to hear, they they want to buy into the controversy because they want that uncertainty. They want the the plausible deniability Mm -hmm. um, that allows them to sort of feel less unsettled, I think. And, you know, the truth is you could drive yourself crazy thinking about all the implications of every choice you make. And, Mm -hmm. And we can't do that. So for most of us, I think we make choices about where we're going to put our attention and messages we're going to listen to. 
Um, and they're the ones where we put our money where our mouth is, if you like. Um, and then sometimes when we're getting those other messages as well, it's just too much. It's too overwhelming. And so in some ways it's sort of, um, it, it, it's easier to accept that there's, there's controversy around it. So because if there's no controversy around it, yeah. It's much harder to, to make those decisions. And so, mm. well, it, I mean, if there's no controversy around it, it's literally just a global no brainer to switch everything to organic over the next 10 years. Yes. <laughs> it's like, and why I, would we not do that? Yeah, yeah, well, actually, and there are reasons we wouldn't do that mm. in, terms of, um, in terms of yields and things mm. like that. I mean, we know that under the right conditions, organic farming can actually yield more food. Mm organic systems but at the moment that's not true well yes and we don't have governments that help subsidize that initial five years where a a yield often goes into a slight decline before it builds back up again yeah and the the truth is also uh in countries where labor is very inexpensive uh then the equation actually works better Mm. in countries like australia where people are more fairly paid it is actually more expensive. It's more labour-intensive to yeah. make food. So um, but it, it actually isn't a complete no-brainer because if everyone tomorrow decided they were going to consume organic food, we would have problems. <laughs> we would have a lot of problems. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't couldn't argue that, that's for sure. Um, so in terms of... Um, what, what did I want? How do I want to phrase this? Okay. In terms of research, so we see one of these big media hoo-ha articles that goes viral and you you think, but hold on, that's going against everything that I've learned about how great organics is. And so, you know, you might become deeply offended by it or quite triggered by seeing something that goes against your fundamental beliefs. How does one start to back themselves up. I think I'd really love to hear from you about how research can be done on an individual level at a time where you hear the phrase, do your research all the time, Um, but with algorithms and things influencing what then shows up for us as a person based on other things we've been interested in, it seems harder and harder to actually do great research as an individual and investigate do you have any tips for people when one of those, you know, like um, uh, eggs and cholesterol or, you know, any of these nutritional yeah. things comes up um, for someone to actually go and have a look and feel satisfied that they can navigate that themselves? Sure. So, uh, look, I, I think the, the first thing to say is we do need to be aware of our own confirmation bias. We like to cherry pick things um, that confirm what we already believe to be true. So we've got to keep an open mind and be aware that sometimes the evidence changes. What's that, that saying, you know, when the, when the facts change, I change my mind? <laughs> um, so I think we have to be willing to change our minds. And if we're not willing to change our minds, if we're only looking for things that confirm what we believe, then we're, we're going to have a problem. So in the age of Google, you know, it's not difficult to find something that agrees with you certainly be able to find that. Um, But whether that's information you can rely on is something different. Now, you know, the recommendations I would make to students, for instance, is to begin with, look for original peer-reviewed research if you know how to read it. And if you don't know how to read it, that's okay. There are people out there who will summarise that research for you. 
but you need to make sure that, that the people who are doing that are unbiased and that making a balanced argument. Um, they will help you to understand the key points. But the first thing I would say is if you're reading something and there are no references that you can track down in, that, in, in whatever you're reading, walk away because there is no excuse for that. Information is, is based on, on evidence, then the person writing it, if they know what they're talking about and if they're credible, will put the references in there. They'll allow you to go and find that, that source of information, read it for yourself and make up your own mind about whether you agree with their interpretation of it. If they're not, if they're not giving you the opportunity to do that, there's something wrong. That would be the first thing I would say is, have they referenced um, the material? Uh, so it will either be a reference list or a hyperlink or something like that. Um, have they referenced it? And if you go to that source of information and you read it, do you agree with how they've actually interpreted that? The other thing I find really useful is the CRAC test. Um, the CRAC test stands for currency, relevance, authority, accuracy, and purpose. Is it recent? Because information changes. You can easily find something that will agree with your point of view, but if it's 15 years old and there's been 15 years of research since that's contradicted that claim, and you mentioned eggs earlier. So, you know, some of the original ideas were, you know, eggs contain cholesterol, therefore, and cholesterol is bad for cardiovascular disease, i.e., you know, eggs are bad. Um, but as time went on, the evidence didn't support that. Uh, so... I think, you know, you need to kind of go, is it current? What is the most recent information? Tell me. Is it relevant? Is it relevant to your region? Like the dirty dozen list. It's, if it's not relevant to your region, then you need to find something that is. Is it authoritative? So the person or the organisation that produced that information, what are their credentials? And is there any potential for bias there? The next is accuracy, so the reliability or truthfulness of information. And this is where um, you need to look for whether they're presenting a balanced argument. Nothing is clear cut. If they're not acknowledging conflicting views, then they're probably not giving you the whole story. So I trust something when it tells me, um, it confirms what, what I think, <laughs> when, you know, like we all go for our confirmation bias. I trust something because it's confirming what I already think, but I trust it more because it's also telling me opposing views. Mm. I quite like it when I see opposing views cited and then rebuttals with references. That's one of my favourite, like, little research yeah. sandwiches. Yeah, nice. Mm. And the final one is purpose. You know, um, why does the information exist? Are they trying to sell me something? Mm. If they're trying to sell me something, then um, then I'm going to put a big question mark next to it. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong, but I'm going to want to track down the sources of information they've cited and I'm going to want to read them for myself and decide if I agree. Mm. Yeah, and often you see uh, in comments, like someone will say, but do you have any references for this? And then the person who's posted whatever they've posted will say, it's all there available for you on such and such website but they don't link to the exact page where it is or, and I just, no. Dubious. Mm. I just, I, look, I, I think we're beyond that point. Yeah. yeah. I don't think anyone worth their salt still does that. And mm -hmm. if you, I feel like they're trying to hide something. So, um, yeah, I, I want to see them up front. Mm. A balanced argument. Nice.
Thank you. You've heard it here, folks, from a literal doctor of something. So I think it's just really important that we come back to what doing one's research actually is and what great research looks like when we find it. Yeah. Look, I think the other thing is, you know, do be aware of your own confirmation bias mm. and, and keep an open mind. Okay. Yeah. Be, be prepared to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And You've so, got to be prepared to be wrong. So let's take, if I can, um, because I wanted to ask you about a specific one and maybe that relates to, to your time where you might have had a belief and, and had to change it um, for yourself. Um, you mentioned you were vegetarian. Were you always vegetarian? No, no. I, um, I became vegetarian I, when I moved to Melbourne. I moved mm-hmm. to from Perth many, many, many years ago. And I was living with a, a beautiful friend, Tony, who was a vegetarian. Uh, and it sort of made sense on one level. And I think that there was some incident where I pressed my thumb into a, a can of tuna or something like that and cut myself. And, and he sort of made some comment about karma or something. And it was I know it was like, you know, the sort of thing that's supposed to put you off. But for some reason, it just kind of went, yeah, I'm ready. And what I realised was I'd actually eaten a largely vegetarian diet for most of my adult life, hadn't made a decision to become vegetarian. And what that actually meant was I wasn't a very good vegetarian because I made the conscious choice. I wasn't going out of my way to work out what, how, how to replace the things that I was missing out on um, I, if I excluded animal products. So I hadn't I hadn't gone out of my way to kind of go, okay, well, where am I going to get my protein from? Where am I going to get my iron from? Where am I going to get my B12 from? I hadn't made those decisions because I hadn't made a formal decision to be a vegetarian. So when I did, um, I actually became more curious about how to do it properly. Mm-hmm. And so for the people who passionately do want to be vegetarian or um, vegan who are listening today, I feel like it's a useful question to ask um, of someone who... Um, who is a trained health professional, um, what are some of the best things they can do to protect their health? I think having about, look, it's more difficult. And I, mm. for me personally, uh, I have reasonably high sort of requirements for, for certain nutrients. And I found for me personally, it, it came down to a bit of a decision uh, about whether I exercised or whether I ate animal products because I found that I, I was not managing it well enough to be able to. Um, and for me also the big thing when I really sort of dug down into to my you know the reasons I became vegetarian and what what was sort of below the surface was I was concerned about how animals got to live their lives so I I think death death is not pretty um, and I'm certainly I, I certainly expect uh that we do everything as that we can as humans to provide um a good death both to animals and also each other uh, where necessary but i i was more concerned about how the animal got to live if that animal got to you know graze on the fields with its friends and have a good life and then one day that was over i i could accept that but i couldn't accept an animal being tortured for their whole life for the sake of me being able to consume that and that's where for me the organic food became part of it as well um that I I feel more confident when I purchase organic animal products that those animals have had a better chance at a better life yeah and I feel the same way and um 
had to um, bring animal products into my diet for the same reasons, exercise or yeah. <laughs> or vegetarian. Yeah, and, um, and some people do it really well. I know. Yeah, I you just know, I can't. I envy them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, in terms of um, uh, that research piece, and then um, having a look at something else, something so many people are still confused about is macronutrients. Fats, proteins, carbs. Um, it honestly seems like we get told different things all the time. And uh, macros have been productized to make tons of money for people who develop all these different um, contrary programs to each other. And meanwhile, people are literally, if you look at the larger public health um, uh, view, no healthier for having all of these programs and debates than we were before. In fact, we're going backwards. We seem to be, yeah. Look, I, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. I think mm. when we try to sort of, you know, everybody will be, be better on this diet or everybody will be better. Oh, I feel fantastic on this diet, so everybody else will as well. Mm. And it just doesn't work that way. I think we've got to get more in touch with what works for us. Yeah, yeah. And so when we're doing our own research and investigating, if there is something wrong, we feel like we're carrying too many kilos, BMI is creeping up, um, perimenopause has hit, lots of different things that make different people have um, a need to look into what they're eating and what ratios a little more um, closely. Um, how would you recommend uh, for uh, someone out there to, to do that research for themselves? So I, I think it's something you probably need to do with a practitioner. You need to yeah. go a nutritionist or a naturopath and actually do it properly. Um, you can, you know, something to be said for a bit of trial and error as well and, and trying to work out what, um, what works for you. I'm a big fan of diet symptom diaries. Uh, it doesn't help so much with perhaps with um, the, the creeping weight uh, and those sorts of things, but certainly... Um, keeping a record of what you eat and how it makes you feel, actually making a, a conscious decision to make those connections, mm -hmm. connect with your body, I think is, is really beneficial. And it's one of the main reasons I recommend somebody uh, completes a, a food diet. I'm sometimes less interested in what they're eating and more interested in um, the connections that they make and their relationship with food and, you know, all of those sorts of things as well. So my, my first thought of call would generally be start to keep a record of what you're eating and how it's making you feel and, and listen to your body. Mm. And I think one of the things that I've discovered over the last year that I have found to be shockingly impactful that doesn't actually get talked about so much is the impact of the health of your nervous system on your gut and how it's operating. And if we actually worked on our stress, then our enzymes work better, our, our microbiome is better. We're starting to see some really interesting research. Constipation yeah. obviously improves. And I, I think this is all, like, to, to me as a naturopath, it's hilarious that, you know, people are starting, suddenly starting to talk about these things. Mm. We just go, a duh. A duh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you just kind of, like, I mean, there's a couple of different, you know, key things in there so you go okay well the nervous system is sending the messages to the rest of the body so if the nervous system is sidetracked uh dealing with something else if it's dealing with stress or whatever so you know we talk about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system so the sympathetic nervous system are your stress responses your fight and flight re reactions 
the parasympathetic nervous system uh, is your rest and digest functions. Mm -hmm. And reproduce. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And if the the sympathetic nervous system is constantly activated, then you're just not actually getting those other functions working the way that they're supposed to. So things are going to be compromised. Um, and yes, fertility is a um, is another thing as well. We know that stress has a, a, a massive impact on on fertility, uh, but also you mentioned you know the perimenopausal period and things um, things like that uh, earlier as well. And so you know when the when the ovaries stop producing estrogen, the adrenal glands need to take on some of that responsibility. So if you're adrenal glands are not up to that job because they're so busy dealing with stress. The body's next um, next backup plan is to convert in fatty tissue. So mm. it's holding on to the, it, it, like it's trying to protect you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, often when, when we experience that weight gain and difficult weight loss around the perimenopausal period, it's, it's our body's trying to protect us. Mm. And it's because it's like, I've had a look at your adrenals, they're not up to the job. <laughs> damn it <laughs> and and isn't it cruel how perimenopause is literally at the most technically intense period of the average woman's life with tween ages with the peak cruel, of your career with you know all the things what a cruel joke that is to, <laughs> so to, to mean des- to design it so women hit perimenopause around the same time their kids eat um hit puberty i mean that's mm. That's just a terrible joke. It is a massive design flaw. Thank you, nature. (laughs) Um, Okay. So in terms of um, doing uh, our research, I feel like we've got some really good tips there. I love that crap system. That's um, I'm going to pop that in the show notes. So everyone has that as a point of reference. Uh, Now, something I wanted to ask you about is this wonderful new certification that you're involved with. Um, can you tell us about that? Because I think there may be quite a few people interested in, you know, I know we have a community where there are a lot of health coaches, uh, practitioners as well, uh, doctors who are always keen to broaden their uh, understanding of the impact of organic food. And I'm just so excited there's now actually something that people can study. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely excited about this as well because it is actually um, the, the first time Australia's had a course that's dedicated to organic food. And for me, it's it's kind of perfect because uh, the graduate certificate in organic food nutrition uh, is also uh, within the same department as as the graduate certificate in naturopathic medicine and I'm a naturopath as well. So it's kind of a perfect combination for me. Um, but for people who are interested in formal study in this sort of area, uh, this is a new program. It's fully online. You do one subject at a time over an intensive six-week study period. So one subject for six weeks then you have a couple of weeks off and then you do another subject so you can actually do it within about an eight-month period it looks at developing students knowledge about um, organic farming sustainable and ethical food systems the whole produce journey and also that connection between organic food and health as well so my subject is food is medicine which is my baby I've been teaching for you know 15 or so years on and off at different institutions and it, I mean, it looks at a healthy diet, but it is more than that. It's also looking at the, the, the impact of the food chain, the journey from paddock to plate to person, 
And we also go a bit deeper than that as well. And we also look at um, and the at the relation, I guess the context of people's food choices, culture or values or those sorts of things, and the relationship between um, the food and the person and the planet. So we we dig down into some of those things as well. And you know, we've been talking a lot today about uh, about research and critically assessing information, and that's a big focus. Um, in this course as well. Actually, you know, how do we how do we locate reliable information? And more importantly, how do we be those people who are translating it for other people in, into, um, into meanif meaningful messages? So I think that's really important, not only to be able to create, uh, to, to locate and, and understand that information, but also to be able to translate it for, for consumers. Mm. And not everybody has that brain space to take the complicated and make it simple. And uh, all the time, it's mm. really time consuming and mm. it can be difficult to find reliable information. So, you know, we do need more people can, who can help us with those sorts of things. So, you know, Courses these days, I, I think we're beyond the point where where you enrolled in a course and it just delivered information. If you yeah. want information, it's easy to find information. You know, what we're looking at is helping students to acquire skills that they can apply to all aspects of their life. Mm -hmm. That might be adaptive thinking or problem-solving skills or all that ability to locate and translate credible information. Uh, so, you know, they're the, they're the bigger picture things that I think are really important. Very worthwhile. And can overseas students do this as well, or is it Australia only? I am not sure. I don't believe so at the moment. Uh -huh. um, I think it is Australia only at the moment, but I think that will be a bit of a watch this space. Nice. I will pop the details in the show notes so that people can oh. check it out. Yeah, come join me. It's so much fun. Yeah, I love, I love the sound of it. Um, now, I want to ask you one more question, and that is of all of the things that seem to be teetering on the edge of a greater consciousness when it comes to organics and farming systems. What are you most excited about seeing more of come out at the moment? What I'm most excited about, uh, I, and I, it's just starting to emerge, but um, is how agricultural chemicals impact the microbiome. Mm. There's already some really interesting stuff coming out showing how pesticides in particular disrupt the, the gut microbiota um, and that causes an increase in the permeability of the gut or what sometimes is referred to as leaky gut and inflammation. And we know that those things have an effect on, on obesity and diabetes and metabolic conditions and things like that. So I think that's going to be a big watch this space. Um, not just pesticides, but sort of all agricultural chemicals and actually seeing how those things might have an impact on especially the gut microbiome uh, and what the consequences of those things, the bigger consequences of those things might be in the future. Mm. And so um, speaking to that, how do we accelerate the um, conversation between when this stuff is known to when it actually becomes public health implemented. This is where I think we need more people yeah. who can locate and translate that information. We need people to, to have those, uh, those health literacy skills to be able to actually 
read, there's plenty of information around, but I don't think there's enough people. Um, everyone gets in their little pockets, so the researchers are talking in research speak and mm. it can be exclusive at times. I think we need more people who can build that bridge for us. Yeah, and start the conversation from what is known to what is implemented. Yeah, love it. Thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. It's been fantastic uh, hearing about your experience, both personally and as a practitioner, as well as through to your PhD. And then, of course, giving us all those amazing tips and that wonderful knowledge to take into our own lives. I really, really appreciate it. Well, it's been lovely chatting to you after after some period of actually just podcasts. Yeah, I know. Finally, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Lisa. Pleasure. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at lowtoxlife or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Low Tox Life uh, and, of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year which is about 29.30 US, about 27 euro and about 25 pounds, you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.